If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello, everyone. My name is Spencer Walsh. Welcome to today's show. We got a good one for you, as always, here. This is your Wednesday News Flash. Just keeping it pretty simple. We got three very big, very important stories today. We are kind of going off the same theme as we did a little bit last show, but we're kind of doing it from a mirrored angle. First, we have the indictment in in. Uh, The Jack Smith situation As we take a look at some of the accusations against him Which include efforts to retain power And really doing so by manipulating And trying to overturn the results of a democratic election We'll take a look at the kind of legal implications The roadmap for the indictment What comes next When the trial is happening Obstacles to the trial All that stuff is to come Meanwhile Again we go to the political side Biden and Trump Are pretty much tied We're going to break that down uh, We saw the Republican look at things On the last show politically And talked about how good it was for Trump Well it's pretty incredible Biden is in a very very weak position Heading into the 2024 race. Pretty remarkable stuff. Also, we have Labor's left wing. One of the most interesting kind of political groups in the world, in my opinion, that I like to kind of just follow just due to the unique torture that they're always put through. How can they regain their strength back? We will discuss. All right. So we start with this. Here we have the January 6th case, the big indictment coming in. Um, Yeah, so we had the indictment coming in. This is from the Jack Smith case. This is indictment three out of four expected. The next one is said to be, again, this kind of Georgia-specific, Georgia-related kind of business here when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes to the 5,000,000 votes, the Brad Raffensperger call, and all of this business. Uh, that essentially, you know, Trump essentially really, really tried to steal it in Georgia, even more than he tried to steal it nationwide through the January 6th situation. And they obviously had uh, a pretty a pretty big debate, a pretty big uh, you know, discussion about how to proceed uh, with this. And they have decided to go with the kind of special prosecutor, Jack Smith, coming out with the indictment today. And it's said to be in a few weeks, which, by the way, pretty interesting. Um, in Fulton County, they're saying, you know, essentially if they use if, but we all know it's going to be when they indict Donald Trump. It's going to be a you know no holds barred. It's going to be a perp walk. Uh, he's going to be booked and photographed apparently. So we could get a fingerprint. We could get a Trump mugshot. Finally, going to be one for real to put on all the T-shirts. Something that you know we kind of you know I think our country as a country we deserve a Trump mugshot. Like come on, it's 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 about time. It's got to happen. Um, 
Yeah, so the, the big accusation they make against him here is that he lied about the 2020 election, and he knew it. The indictment laid out how in the two months after Election Day, Trump spread lies about widespread election fraud, even though he knew they were false, as he de- deliberately disregarded the truth and relentlessly disseminated um, these lies. Anyway, at a prolific pace, the indictment continued to make his knowingly false claims appear legitimate, create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger, and erode public faith in the administration of the election. Of course, Mr. Trump has never been known for fealty to the truth. Again, it's a very, very fair point there from Michael Schmidt and Maggie Haberman, the true Trump OGs from the New York Times, kind of rearing back up into form, trying to get ready to go for, you know, what is expected to be a pretty, pretty interesting election that we're going to get into in just a moment. But, you know, I think, you know, the, the first thing I'm going to say is nothing really to be that surprised about by any stretch of imagination. You know, we all kind of knew this indictment was coming. It's essentially some of the the charges here, laying out some of the charges, uh, three conspiracy counts. One of the, this is from, again, uh, Charlie Savage in the New York Times. Um, one of the charges, a conspiracy to violate rights, is Section 241 of the Title 18 of the United States Code. A conviction on this charge is punishable by up to five years in prison. Congress enacted what is now Section 241 after the Civil War to go after white Americans in the South, including members of the Ku Klux Klan, who used terrorism to prevent formerly enslaved African Americans from voting. But in a series of cases in the 20th century, the Supreme Court upheld expanding the use of statute to election fraud conspiracies like ballot box stuffing. In invoking the statute, the indictment frames it as a conspiracy against the right to vote and to have one's vote counted. So essentially saying that these were, uh, you know, that, that vote counted part obviously going to be the pretty pretty crucial part there. We can, again, we've kind of seen that this, this stuff is coming for a long time. And legally, you know, we don't really know too much, you know, as of yet about the timetable on this, but it seemed to be, you know, a pretty damning judge. He, this, uh, this case has been put in front of the only judge who gave um, January 6th protesters slash rioters more jail time than what the government asked for. So she is somebody who is not very sympathetic. And this is, this is going to be January. This is all about January 6th. Um, you know, so it's it's not going to be a particularly chill uh, audience for the Trump team. Uh, kind of a no BS person looking at this stuff. The indictment said the purpose purpose of the conspiracy was to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election by using knowingly false claims of election fraud to obstruct the federal government function by which those results are collected, counted, and certified, the indictment said. The indictment cites five means by which Mr. Trump and his accused co-conspirators sought to reverse the results of the election, including pushing state legislatures and election officials to change election votes won by his opponent, Joe Biden, in his favor instead. That is on the basis uh, uh, on the pretext of baseless fraud claims, the defendant pushed officials in certain states to ignore the popular vote, disenfranchise millions of voters, dismiss legitimate electors, and ultimately cause the ascertainment of and voting by illegitimate electors in favor of the defendant, the indictment says. It also cited the recruitment of fake electors in swing states, Mr. Biden won, trying to wield the power of the Justice Department to fuel lies about the election conspiracy and pressuring uh, Vice President Mike Pence to delay the certification of the election or reject the legitimate electors. And Mike Pence kind of is in a very, very interesting situation. Honestly, I don't think, you know, he's in a very interesting situation that will probably, you know, the best it's going to do is going to end up with, you know, I could see him honestly on some sort of like, 
you know, central, maybe not MSNBC, but maybe CNN, you know, as a political contributor after he kind of drops out of the race and his political career, his electoral career is over. Um, you know, I could see him with a, a spot on CNN being like, you know, Chris Licht bringing him in there to talk, take, take truth. Who, who better than to take truth to power uh, under Donald Trump than somebody who, you know, really turned up against him and so strong and all that stuff. Obviously, it's BS. Um, <laughs> it's just like, it's just a whole kind of ridiculous situation uh, here. And, you know, I could honestly some, see some liberals just, you know, not all. You know, there definitely be a few resist libs that will get a little bit mad about this stuff. Um, but I think it is kind of interesting to see that, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see if that, if that happens. It seems to be, you know, kind of the most like maybe the Wall Street Journal. He'll have some sort of punditry job. Uh, but obviously, this is not going to be, you know, politically, it's not going to be very, very effective here. Uh, but he already is. He's he's trying to come out again as the kind of uh, hard socially conservative, you know, most right wing on abortion, but also somebody who says that Trump is corrupt, which is an interesting position to take. You know, not really giving get him that much. Maybe some you know richer Christians in Iowa will 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 get behind it. But um, after a campaign speech at the Indiana State Fair on Wednesday, Pence criticized Trump's reckless assertion that a vice president had the power to overturn election lawyers and said he was surrounded by a group of crackpot lawyers who kept telling him what his itching ears wanted to hear. And, you know, obviously, you know, that's kind of a, like saying the sky is blue and the sun is yellow. Like, let's be real. Uh, Pence reiterated a statement he made the night before in response to the federal indictment of Trump that anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. And again, I really hate the stuff that all these, you know, establishment people do where they want to criticize Trump, but they don't want to use his name. It happened a lot in 2016 and 15. It just looks so bad. Just say his name. Like, come on. Um, yeah, so Trump actually responded, <laughs> responded to this. He says, I feel badly for Mike Pence, who is attracting no crowds, enthusiasm, or loyalty, from people who, as a member of the Trump administration, should be loving him. He didn't fight against election fraud, which we will now be easily able to prove based on the recent fake indictment and information which will have finally be made available to us. Finally, a really big deal. The VP had power that Mike didn't understand, but after the election, the Rhinos and Dems changed the law, taking that power away. Uh, yeah, so Mike didn't understand. He didn't understand the power that he had. So it's so sad. You hate to see it. Uh, but anyway, uh, throughout his careers in business, business and politics, Trump has sought to bend reality to his own needs, with lies ranging from relatively small ones, like claiming he was of Swedish and not German descent when trying to rent to Jewish tenants in New York City, to proclaiming that President Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Uh, if you repeat something enough, he has told his confidence over time, uh, people will believe it. And honestly, you know, <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that he's dead on about that. Uh, by and large, though, the trait has served him well, helping him bluster through bluster and bluff through his, his way through bankruptcies and then to the White House and through crises. Once he was there, personal scandals, two impeachments, and a special counsel's investigation when he was in office. But now he's been held to account in a way he has never had been before. Uh, with a new special counsel, Jack Smith, he is asserting uh, was a campaign of falsehoods that undermined the foundations of democracy. Already, Trump's lawyers and allies are setting out the early stages of a legal strategy to counter the accusations, saying that Trump's First Amendment rights are under attack, 
saying, you know, obviously, you know, I think the again, the biggest, the toughest thing they're going to have to do here is prove kind of in the trial if the prosecutors can can bungle this. This is going to be a real, it's a relatively tough thing. Um, you know, Trump's lawyers are kind of already crying about this. Is he, They're going to have to really prove that he 100%, without a shadow of a doubt, believed that he was, you know, just blowing smoke up these people's asses and knew that he was blowing smoke up these people's asses. And I think, you know, that could be easier said than done because you can totally see Trump being like, you know, generally believing, you know, and not or people at least not being able to prove otherwise that he won this election and he was going to, by any means necessary, get a handle on it. Um, you know, and and he was going to change the result. He was going to get Biden out of there no matter what. They say Trump had every right to express views about election fraud that they say he believed and still believes to be true and that the actions he took or proposed after the election were based on legal advice, which, of course, as an American, as an American president, would be his right. The indictment and his initial response to uh, set up a showdown between those opposing, those two opposing assertions, a principle that what prosecutors in this case called the pervasive and destabilizing lies from the highest office in the land uh, and can be integral to criminal plans and that uh, political speech enjoys broad protections, especially when conveying what Trump's allies say are sincerely held beliefs. I think that part there is probably going to be the most important, whether or not these beliefs are going to be considered sincere, whether or not they're going to be, you know, okay, this guy, he may be crazy, but he actually had these beliefs. I think that's going to be something that will probably be the hinge that this case swings on and probably to a good extent the, the Georgia case as well. All right, we now move on to our next story in just a minute. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening and supporting Newsflash. We now have a brand new way for you to be heard if you want whether a text message or a audio message, please no video messages. I really just do not think that's necessary. We have a new feedback box open for you. Ladies and gentlemen, it is officially open. SWRN702 at gmail.com. Send a text message. Send a voice message um, of no more than 30 seconds via the voice memos function. Either of those two options, and we will 100%, 100%, not going to find this guarantee anywhere else. We're going to play it on the show, listen to what you have to say, and it literally could be about anything. Well, if it's inappropriate, we won't play it, but it could be about anything. Thank you so much. This is my thank you to all the listeners who have stuck out with us and want to have their own voice in the show. SWRN702 at gmail.com is the address all right so we do go on to our next story um and see kind of political kind of the mirror image of the political that we looked at on the last show is again by new york times and nate cone here uh writing these uh, the Siena pulling up. He writes, after the Democrats fared well against MAGA candidates in the midterms last year, it might have been reasonable to think that President Biden would have a clear advantage in a rematch against Donald J. Trump. Yet, despite the Stop the Seal movement, 
The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and the numerous investigations facing Mr. Trump, Biden and Trump are still tied, each at 43% among registered voters in our first time seeing a poll of the 2024 cycle. The possibility of these criminal indictments having crippled Trump's general election chances might come as a surprise or even a shock, but the result is worth taking seriously. It does not seem to be a fluke. The uh, Time Siena polls last fall, which were in the 2022 midterms, is what they're talking about, also showed a very close race in a possible presidential rematch, including one point lead for Trump among registered voters in our final October survey. Trump's resilience is not necessarily an indication of his strength. In most respects, he appears to be a pretty badly wounded general election candidate. Just 41% of registered voters say they have a favorable view of him, while a majority believe he committed serious federal crimes and say his conduct after the election went so far that it threatened American democracy. But Biden shows little strength of his own. And I think it's, yeah, it's definitely clear to say, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just really a sad state of democracy. But honestly, I think this election is going to come down to how much support does Biden lose for being too old, too ineffectual, too weak, essentially. You know, just the old, you know, I think the old plays a lot into the ineffectual in terms of po- politics and things like that. You know, honestly, I don't think there's one single thing that Biden had done or kind of a host of things that Biden had done that's going to be really driving people out to the polls, um, you know, to vote against him in droves. I think it's just this this kind of feeling that this guy is unfit. He is too weak. He is not effectual. Um, and I really think that, you know, obviously the economy could be, I think, a pretty key disconnect that's really drawing down Biden's support. Uh, but we will get into that as well. And then on the Trump side, obviously, you know, the, the pretty blatant thing is how much are people going to want to, you know, just say we want we want to overthrow the system, but we do not want or we want to you know burn down. We want to hurt the system. These like the, these Trump supporters are, are these kind of, uh, you know, independents, these people that only Trump can bring into the polls, these, uh, you know, working class voters, uh, mostly white working class voters, but also increasingly, you know, some Hispanic and, and black voters as well, uh, kind of in the working class position that, you know, are they going to be worth is it really going to be worth, you know, trying to burn up the system, trying to, you know, shake things up with, you know, again, with Trump after all these criminal indictments and, you know, if the perception is, is he going to be just too much out for himself? Um, and again, you know, you can't really run a campaign that's about saying, you know, Donald Trump is selfish. He's not going to really support you. <laughs> it's like it's been done before and it really has not worked. Um, so it's kind of puts Biden in a pretty interesting situation in, you know, because there is you know, no vibrancy from the Biden campaign. It's just increasing weakness, increasing corruption. And, you know, it can't really go against Trump's corruption, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a bigger way, you know, just like we saw with Hillary Clinton, um, just as the, you know, just as Trump used, you know, Bill Clinton's sexual crimes, let's be honest, against uh, Hillary when she was trying to call Trump a rapist and all that stuff. And, you know, Bill and Trump both are, and Hillary helped Bill cover it up. I think that's you know kind of a clear fact at this point at this at this juncture um you know you can't really you know you can't call as much um Trump corrupts when Trump is going to just turn around and say look at Hunter look at your son look at Hunter um but yeah like there there's just another another situation about that today where or yesterday where there was already some you know major you know closed door hearing um, you know, honestly, I really have a hard time getting myself motivated about it, but it's going to, the effect it's going to have is the same thing it had in 2016. You know, I think, honestly, I think this election's going to be, you know, barring COVID, it's going to be a lot closer to 2016 and 2020. And 2020 was an incredibly close election, um, you know, that a lot of people don't really realize in terms of the, you know, the margin of the key states. 
it come down to like what a hundred thousand votes separating the two out of like what uh like oh, tens of millions i think it is or a hundred i think it was like what 120 million votes um you know i may i'm maybe pulling that number out of my butt but uh yeah so it's like it really is going to be coming down to a, a pretty close situation here um you know, Biden not showing strength of his own. Uh, despite of an improving economy, his approval rating is only 39%. I mean, two points higher than it is in our poll or was in our poll in October before the midterm election. At least for now, he seems unable to capitalize on his opponent's profound vulnerability. And you know, honestly, I think I had, because you know, again, that like that's, that's where you're coming from if you're Joe Biden. I think there's this broad sense when it comes to about, you got to kind of be macro about it because, you know, that's, you know, the way the most American people are thinking, um, coming out to these, uh, like the, the people that Republicans, at least Trump and the Trump, the Trump Republicans turn out, if they want to do well. Um, they may be turned off by the indictments. Um, but you know, there could be a bunch of people turned off by the fact that, you know, it's a weak economy and, but it's, it's an improving economy, but it's a weak economy. Um, but, you know, broadly, clearly, there seems to be, again, no sign of life, no sign of vibrancy, no sign of new ideas, no sign of change, and really just no sign of really the lights being on in the White House increasingly. And Americans are just being asked to, you know, sign on to four more years of that with Kamala Harris as the VP. And I think that's just not going to be a very successful situation. And I mean, I was just like a lot of people, you know, like, you know, kind of arguing back and forth on Twitter. And it's it's really kind of remarkable, like the blinders on that um, a lot of a lot of liberals have about this stuff, and it's like a you know, kind of a back and forth situation. Um, that you know he's making what's uh, Matt Chrisman on on Twitter, the, <laughs> the the host of the Chapo Trap House, who came on Newsflash and just yelled at me for thirty minutes. But still, is probably one of my favorite political analysts, analysts out there, hands down. Uh, you know, make it a pretty banal but pretty obvious point. Anyone being annoying about the danger of Trump ending democracy, uh, about how the danger of Trump ending democracy is real and needs to be taken seriously, should consider being annoying to the party that's about to run a senile crook with a sub forty percent approval rating against him. If they're not, then they're full of shit. Like you know, you got to be again. It's the continuous basic mindset the democratic party can't be failed can uh can't fail it can only be failed you know it's this constant constant mindset that even if they're on somebody whose son is pre- like pretty obvious and blatant blatant corru- blatantly corrupt like you know he's this this is going to be used against him and it's going to make pretty much all charges um you know all this indictment stuff way mean way way less just like the same like the same thing that happened with uh hillary trying to attack trump uh, for the ground by the pussy tapes like that is essentially how things turned out and you know it's it's pretty it's pretty clear i think a lot of people though really just got mad at that because it's just like well you know they just there's something really in the minds of a lot of liberals there's a lot of people out there like being fundamentally you know critical in any way really in any basic way especially when trump is down the pike uh, about the Democratic Party just seems fundamentally insane. Like, it's just something that they reflexively cannot do, even as things look incredibly bad, you know? And they do not look great. Like, you know, Trump is definitely weaker, but Biden is fundamentally, you know, he was not an incumbent, wasn't dealing with COVID, 
People were way, way more desperate for a change. 2020 was a different time, and it was a 10 times, 100 times more of a crazier time. Biden, for four, through four years, way weaker. Trump also quite, you know, quite a bit weaker. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't think really it's as weak. Uh, Democrats can't necessarily assume the race will snap back into clear Biden lead once people tune into the race either. The 14% of voters who didn't back Biden or Trump consisted mostly of people who volunteered, even though it wasn't provided as an option in the poll that they would vote for someone else or simply wouldn't vote if those were the candidates. They know the candidates, they just don't want either of them. You know, it was turnout 100% is going to be going down in 2024. Um, it's reasonable to believe that Biden has the better path to winning more of those voters. They dislike Trump more than they dislike Biden, and the political environment, including promising economic news, seems increasingly favorable to Biden, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, bottom line, though, is uh, both candidates coming incredibly weak, but if Biden can turn around the economy, you know, it always comes down to the economy. If Biden can actually, you know, maybe use some of that mainstream media magic, figure out, you know, the disconnect between popular opinion and the data on the economy here and, you know, what, how it's affected. Because honestly, I've, I've seen some theories, none really seem to resonate with me um, about why there is this major disconnect between a, uh, the Biden approval rating on the economy and the actual numbers of the economy, which, you know, wage growth relatively up, inflation coming down, um, you know, but broadly, I think my personal best guess is, you know, unless he can kind of convince enough people that there is some there there with his whole administration and really just broadly his brain, um, that even maybe even if it's not him, at least there's maybe I don't know switch the VP I don't know uh, to you know, maybe more popular Democrat. Um, I feel like there just there just needs to be some sort of excitement. There needs to be some sort of jolt of energy to say, look. We are still here. We still, you know, want to move the country forward, you know, because people, I think that is a big thing they just, you know, don't buy yet. But that with the economy could make for a very interesting picture. But all in all, it is, to say the very least, a jump ball, although I still give the slightest, slightest edge uh, at this early, early juncture to Biden. But, you know, it all does remain to be seen. All right, now to our last story. Uh, it is, you know, we're, we're taking a trip across the pond here, and it comes uh, to do with the labor left. They obviously have been marginalized after being controlled under former labor leader there. This is obviously the UK Labor Party that we're talking about here. Um, they were, you know, under control, in control, the socialist left, as opposed to the neoliberal center of the Labor Party. Uh, they were under control with Jeremy Corbyn from 2015 to 2019, suffered a brutal election loss for a lot of factors, and had been sidelined by what was a true neoliberal, but kind of a you know democratic socialist unifier, you know pretender who turned into being Blair on steroids, uh, Keir Starmer, and he is now, uh, you know, he's now in in the driver's seat in the party, and the question is, how can the Corbynites, the labor left, gain back control? Uh, and he writes, they write about this in Jacobin. Um, one of the intellectual leaders of the of, of Corbynism, the late Leo Panitch, concluded in his final book with the hopes, hopeful observation that the 2019 election defeat concealed a substantial rejuvenation of socialism in Britain. The fruit of a unique generational collaboration between the labor left formed in the 1970s and a new one that would carry the project forward. Well, how's that going? 
Obituaries for the labor left, whether it's boomer or millennial strands, are sadly low-hanging fruit at this point. No match for the former director of public prosecutions, Keir Starmer, and his right-wing coup. Veteran leftist figureheads Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott are suspended from the party, sending left-wing officials at all levels of government are routinely vanished from their candidacies on any formal pretext. Side note, yeah, the current kind of right-wing leader of the Labor Party has been stopping uh, left-wing candidates from running in local, regional, mayoral, and even uh, national elections, like MP uh, elections, under the Labor name for quite some time. They'll just on, and it's been on incredibly spurious grounds. There has been some efforts to get people out and running as independents. That hasn't really gone as well, but. You know, it, it, it's there's been some encouraging prospects, though, but it's an important thing to look at and continue to follow. But worse, though, as I have complained before in Jacobin and beyond, this is James Smith, by the way, writing in Jacobin. Um, what political propositions have the labor left and the broader Corbynism ecosystem have managed to come up with in defeat have tended towards anti-political technocracy? And are, to put it kindly, far from equal to the times. Things seem impossible, yet recent events should act as a reminder that we've done impossible things before. Two such uh, possibilities occurred within the first year of Corbynism, and I propose that returning to their lessons presents a way out of this current deadlock. Younger readers may not recall that the turning point in the 2015 Labor leadership election that allowed Corbyn to wholly distinguish himself from his new Labor rivals was the party's edict that Labor MPs show their toughness by abstaining on, rather than opposing, the welfare bill, uh, welfare reform bill proposed by David Cameron's Tory government. As John McDonnell remarked at the time, the bill's statistic and arbitrary cuts to household vomit, or sorry, household income for the poorest was something one should swim through vomit to oppose, but Corbyn, alone among the leadership candidates, did so. This simple pre- presentation of the moral difference between Corbyn and his mainstream labor rivals was an important turn in the fortunes of the Corbyn candidacy, which had previously been assumed to be impossible. Apart from the overcoming the impossibility of being elected from the left at all, the second impossibility with the Corbyn project was its survival of the chicken coup of June 26, or 2016, when 44 shadow cabinet ministers, Keir Starmer among them, resigned in an attempt, as current leader, by the way, uh, in an attempt to force the end of Corbyn's leadership. They said, uh, you know, all in kind of his, his shadow cabinet, which is essentially the cabinet that he would have where he elected, all resigned and said, you have to resign as well. It is difficult to mentally reconstruct how utterly extraordinary Corbyn's refusal to resign in that situation was. That impossible act proved the resilience of the generational compact on the UK left that Panitch described. It gave the pretext for Corbyn to elevate young left-wing allies into senior shadow cabinet roles, and crucially, it contributed to the clear water between Corbyn personally and the establishment labor brand, a populist advantage in the snapshot of an election that followed a year later in June 2017. It was also a reminder that every advance of socialism in Britain requires the humiliation of the ordinary decorum of the Labour Party, which, by the way, is a very interesting point for not only the Labour Party, but for the Democratic Party as well. You know, I think these people, the clear water needs to be It's something to be said that, you know, redefining the Democratic brand, getting clear water from the you know, neoliberal 1990s on Democratic establishment brand is going to be a key thing for anybody hoping to ascertain power uh, from the left in really any situation. I feel like, you know, whether it be 
um, abroad in England or whether it be kind of home here in America with the Democratic Party, it's just something that I really think needs to happen. Like these people, you know, the, it needs to be shown that the rules, the standard rules as they were written are, you know, just not fit, as they say in England, not fit for purpose anymore. Um, yeah, these are the stories that should be kept in the left's collective memory. But what good are they now? To the first, the 2015 welfare bill that sealed Corbyn's victory contained among the earliest formal references to a two-child cap on benefits in Britain, i.e. withholding tax credits and other benefits after recipients parent a third child, which the conservatives brought into effect in 2017, the, the two-child policy, essentially. By some historical quirk, the two-child cap is again driving political conversation in Britain this month after Starmer announced that an incoming Labour government would not abolish it, despite the policy directly keeping hundreds of thousands of children in poverty. To those who remember, the dynamic is 2015 all over again, not least when Corbyn's current media appearances condemning the cap coincide with the surprise polls that place him the most popular current or former Labour leader, while the media salivates over the prospect of the circus of him running again against Labour, for either London mayor or his own current parliamentary seat of Islington North next year, which I think he should absolutely run for Islington North yet again. To the second, the memory of Corbyn in the left's negotiation after the 2016 chicken coup presents a lesson for responding to the affairs surrounding Jamie Driscoll, the Labour mayor, uh, metro mayor for the north of Tyne. Uh, is one of the most conspicuous promoters of Corbynite industrial policies in local government, and last month was barred from standing as a Labour mayoral candidate at the next election. He was targeted with the same kind of preposterous and sordid charges of proximity to the magic A-word, anti-Semitism, specifically for speaking alongside filmmaker Ken Loach, that had become routine in Starmer's Labour. Driscoll has announced that he will run as an independent and immediately attracted well over $100,000 in small donations uh, in the course of a few days, which is pretty incredible. Uh, I think it was on GoFundMe, literally. Sarmel recalled the humiliation of then-Prime Minister Tony Blair in 2000 when left-winger Ken Livingston was elected London mayor as an independent after the Labour Party machine was deployed to stop him running under its banner. It's a little bit of a different situation than the chicken coup, as it's been a long time since a labor left MP was in a position to resign from anything in protest, even if they wanted to. But the Driscoll moment presents a far better alternative. A concerted series of appearances by labor left MPs alongside their comrade Driscoll would force Starmer's hand in one of two directions. He either overlooks the misdemeanor and the left claws back some autonomy for the first time since 2020, or more likely, he withdraws the whip from them all, presenting a galvanizing moment for the wider left structurally, similar to, even if inverted from, the coup from 2016. And further, with independent runs by Driscoll and Corbyn as its prize, the energy would be in service of a project free for now of the albatross of the Labour Party. One of the most frustrating things about the labor left's timidity and inertia since 2020 is how unnecessary it's been. Back then, as one of a tiny number of writers in the mainstream press making the case uh, for Rebecca Long Bailey, uh, the kind of uh, successor to the Corbyn agenda that ran after he resigned in 2019, it was a pretty damn tough job. I argued that the innovative community wealth building industrial policies that were her portfolio had been underutilized in the 2019 election and are still the main card the left has to play in Britain. This would mean awarding government contracts to small and medium and local businesses while offering state support to help them pay a living wage and to secure their green credentials, ending Britain's addiction to outsourcing globalized companies and turning back the Thatcherite new labor market revolution from the local level up. 
This is a program that can be pursued at the national and district school shows, the local level, in good times, uh, electoral times, or bad, within the Labor Party and without. It is also a program that is something to offer precisely the small business people and disgruntled economically nationalist Brexit supporters who most needlessly feared Corbyn and whom many of us have argued would be more productive coalition partners than the fair-weather liberal professionals whom Corbyn prioritized in post-2017. Um, this policy platform for the political unrest on the left has sat preserved in amber since 2020. Today's uncanny repetitions of the opportunities of the welfare bill and the chicken coup that launched Corbynism in its first year finally offer the chance to break out, break it out again. If only what remains of the labor left can recover its ability to take some chances. And again, sticking their neck out, you know, doing things that, you know, trying to move the ball forward. Again, especially as we talked about in the context of Joe Biden and the kind of just nothing, the lack of any there there, you know, put it mildly. Um, you know, it could be a pretty interesting lesson for the Democrats to learn too. All right, we're back on Friday. It's News Flash.